This podcast is brought to you by Quick Left, an award-winning custom software consultancy that crafts outstanding web and mobile applications. Find more great content like this podcast at quickleft.com. Quick Left's Chief Product Officer, Joe Stump, talks about the business of coding in this series of podcasts. Twice monthly, we will feature a new podcast with different industry experts that explore not only the challenges that face the technical side of business, but the business side of technology. Each all-star guest shares their own experience on the technical and non-technical aspects of running a company and imparts tips, tools, and advice for the programmer and business person. Hello, all, and thank you again for joining us for another episode of The Business of Coding. I'm joined today by a good friend and, uh, and an investor in, in Sprintly. Uh, his name is Alex Payne. You can follow him on Twitter at AL3X. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. So, Alex, uh, just for, for those that are listening that, that uh, maybe don't follow you on Twitter or uh, haven't read some of your, some of your fantastic blog posts, um, I highly recommend you check it out, al3x.net. Um, what have you been up to for the last few years? <laughs> so um, I think probably if, if you do follow me on Twitter, it's because I used to work for Twitter. Uh, I was one of the first engineers there. Uh, you know, I, I joined when Twitter had yet to incorporate. They didn't even know if, if it really was going to fly as a product or as a company. Uh, and I stuck around for about three and a half years. So you know, going from a team of about 10 people to a team of 150. Uh, and while they're, um, you know, helped form their developer platform division of the company and worked on some backend infrastructure and that kind of thing, uh, I left to co-found uh, Simple, uh, which you may have heard of as Bank Simple. It is a consumer-friendly online banking service. Um, the company is based in Portland, Oregon. And they just recently were acquired by BBVA, a very large uh, Spanish-based international bank. Uh, but Simple gets to remain, you know, this kind of nice independent business unit and stay in Portland and keep, um, you know, kind of fighting the good fight uh, to, you know, basically be a, a bank that that people can trust uh, with really good technology and really good customer service. So I'm uh, happy with, with how that's gone. Um, and after taking a little bit of time off to travel and write and uh, meet people in startup communities all over the world, uh, a couple of months ago, I joined my friend uh, Clay Johnson at his new venture, uh, the Department of Better Technology. Uh, so we are working on better uh, software for government, um, you know, from basic things like better online forms, which seems like a no-brainer problem, but is actually a huge issue for uh, governments all over the world, uh, to things like open civic data, uh, you know, mapping uh, civic resources for citizens. There's, there's just a ton of uh, kind of low-hanging fruit in that world, uh, and that's what we're going after. That's awesome. Um, I know pre previous to us uh, officially getting the, the – uh the thing kicked off, and I know obviously from from your background and stuff that you've been very interested in political science um, and and political activism. What what would you think? What would you say? Or you know, it's interesting because you're you're effectively moving from working at a very fast pace, uh, you know, generally uh, well funded uh, uh, work environment where everybody deeply understands technology, and then moving over to uh, um, 
quite frankly, bureaucratic work, usually less funded. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they aren't as deeply knowledgeable with tech. Um, what I what I, I would love to hear, you know, one of the things that, that I often feel that engineers, a trap that we fall into often, and I'm guessing the, the former cohort, uh, your former coworkers exhibit, you know, this is like technology is like, they always think about like crazy, awesome, futuristic ideas. Like probably 90% of our friends right now are contemplating what they can do with drones versus versus <laughs> right <laughs> or or actively working on startups involving drones, and then versus you know bureaucrats and and government officials who I'm guessing have a much different view of technology. Uh, is, do you find that's the case? And if so, what are what have been some of the surprising aspects of of moving in and doing kind of technical work for for governments and bureaucracies as opposed to kind of. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively new to DOBT and it's still a relatively new organization. So I think time will tell, you know, how effective we are at, at navigating the political landscape. But we internally try to behave, I, I guess I hesitate to say like a startup because for me that carries a lot of negative ba- baggage. I think we just, we, we try to be, uh, you know, kind of nimble and no bullshit. Right. And, and I think that those are sort of the, the essential positive aspects of, of a startup. Um, I've been surprised at how many of our contacts in the governments that we are selling our products to are actually surprisingly tech savvy. Um, you know, there's still the occasional, uh, you know, ridiculous thing of like, you know, uh, applying for some bid means that our sales guy has to hand over 10 different Word documents including one that simply lists the number of employees on our company, right? So a, a Word document with the number four and nothing else in it, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's stuff like that, uh, that that's a little surprising coming from, you know, that, that a kind of slick, well-funded startup environment. But there, there, I think over the last 10 years, there actually have been a lot of tech-minded people who've seen the need for their skill set in government and have really taken the lead. And, you know, you you see it more in communities that are closer to the tech world. Uh, You know, San Francisco and Oakland are obviously, like, very tech-minded, New York increasingly so. Um, But even in smaller cities that we've been talking to, um, there there are some forward-thinking folks. Um, So I I really like that, uh, you know, they, they have an appetite for technology, uh, and yeah, some of that is going to be more practical, more down to earth stuff like, you know, web forms, not drones. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's that's what most people need. Right. Is is kind of just simple, like better information management. That's that's so much of the promise of technology. Yeah. I You know, it's it's been funny. There's a whole bunch of things about technology where, and you find, I find that I've really dealt with this moving into more product development where like you try to come up with these really elegant, engineered, tricky kind of solutions. And unfortunately, like they just, you know, users, just customers or whatever, they just need a big red button. Like, you know, like you and I would probably be like, that is a garish, ugly thing. But there are a lot of customers that we have where it's like, if you just had a giant button where I could log in and the only UI was download all tickets as a CSV, like customers would go wild. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's why, you know, 
of the four people in our company, you know, one of the first uh, hires was a, a really excellent sales guy who's talking to customers all day. And, you know, as, as much, um, as much as we hear about, you know, oh, everyone in a startup should be a working engineer and, you know, that's how the best companies are made. I, I'm not actually convinced of that. I think that, that having someone whose primary skill is really communication uh, in, in both directions, you know, going from our company to the customer and, and the customer back to the company, um, that's, that's really, really critical. We need to understand what they need and, and the best way to deliver that to them. Yeah, this this is this has come up a, a few times. Um, I actually talked with one of your your former colleagues at Twitter, Ryan King, on a previous episode, and that was communication came up a lot with him, and it's come up with a lot, with a number of our other guests. Um, you know, if if you could go back uh, and talk to a, a a sixteen and seventeen year old Alex Payne, um, I'm guessing some sort of deeper knowledge of communication would be one point you'd give him. Like, you know, you need to learn how to be a better communicator more quickly. And, but what are some of the other skills that you would tell uh, that young Alex Payne? Like, you look, you're going to go into coding. It's, you know, you're going to end up doing some businessy type stuff and just BT dubs. I recommend taking these three 100 level courses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's like some portion of business school that if you haven't actually gone to business school, you are f kind of forced to learn on the job very quickly. And, you know, like, I think sort of the Y Combinator school of thought is like, well, that's actually the best way to do it, right, is you learn through experience. And more or less, you get the, the venture community to like fund your your MBA in the form of your first most likely failed startup. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I definitely learned a fair bit of that stuff. Um, at Simple and, and at previous jobs, just kind of watching um, bosses and, and managers uh, deal with the headache of, of just keeping a company going. Um, you know, simple stuff like, you know, how to think about payroll and um, just sort of how to model the cash flow of the business in a very practical way. Uh, that's stuff that, that um, you know, I think the earlier you understand, even if you want your day-to-day -day job to just be writing code, the more you understand about how your business functions mechanically, I think the the, the better you understand your work and and how to actually um, provide value and 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 you know balance providing value with like building long term interesting technology and building your own career and all the rest of it. It really helps you evaluate potential work opportunities and, and put them in context. If if you go into every interview with this sort of, you know, blind faith that the company that you're working for is going to be well run and financially stable, you're definitely in for a wake up call. <laughs> you know, I, I, I uh, left school to go work at a little startup. And that startup is still, you know, 10 plus years later, uh, still going strong. Uh, and the guy who started it has clearly learned a lot of lessons. But when I showed up, you know, like a few days later, the only other two employees were fired. And, you know, it was just like me and the CEO in his office and him stressing out about how he was going to make payroll next month. And for someone who had just like left school and, you know, gotten an apartment and uh, all the rest of it, it was it was freaky. Right. And and. I, you know, it was a very, very harsh lesson in like, um, 
you know, asking, asking some, some more pointed questions uh, during that interview process. Cause all I knew when I left school was, you know, I like this guy, I like my coworkers, I like the stuff I'm going to get to work on. Uh, this all seems like better than going to class all the time. Hmm. So that's a, that's a really funny. You said something in there that, that, that really stuck out to me, which is that you, you seem to imply that, that there is a difference between delivering value and writing cool code. Could yeah. you explain what you meant by that a little bit? Um, you know, one one thing that it's taken me a long time to learn, uh, and and I think it, it sort of requires like a level of of humility, and um, you know, a, a sort of ability to set your own uh, interests and biases aside when it comes to technology is that you know a lot of the times the code you want to write is not the code that the business needs you to write. And I think particularly younger programmers are so incentivized to learn as many different technologies as they can. And you know, younger, younger programmers who are rising through the ranks quickly are often promoted because they, they write code fast, right? They're more productive than their peers. But I think what, what you learn through the course of your career is that, you know, writing really cool code and some brand new technology really quickly d- isn't necessarily going to result in code that's maintainable, code that's relatively error-free, code that actually like reflects the long-term needs of the business. Um, there's sort of a reason that your older peers in your organization are moving a little bit more slowly, uh, a little bit more deliberately, um, you know, those, it's, it's not just that they're over the hill. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I think that, you know, they've, they've kind of learned something about how their work relates to the business. Um, it's not just kind of code for code's sake. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I get into, uh, actually, uh, and I seem to, I seem to hang out with a bunch of your coworkers, uh, former coworkers at Twitter, but Blaine, Blaine Cook and I gave this uh, talk one time at a at a conference about uh, basically like language zealots and my favorite one is people are always like they always somehow some way they tie and management managers do this too business people do this too where they tie this i've seen ceos do this and i've definitely seen engineers do this where they they for some reason they're like my business is failing which probably means that the product didn't fit where they thought it would in the market it doesn't mean it's a bad product it just you know, maybe they picked the wrong beachhead. There's a million business reasons why that could be wrong, right? And and then they'll focus on be like, oh, it's written in PHP and we're self-hosted. If we just moved to the cloud and converted, rewrote everything to Rails, everything would be kosher. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I just saw a friend, uh, you know, retweeting, uh, I guess, some manager at PayPal uh, it, you know, and, and is this tweet saying, you know, we're, we're hiring node developers come, you know, reinvent the future of PayPal. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's all like node at PayPal now. And it's like, I, I'm, you know, take what you feel about node and, and put it aside. Like, um, I, I just sort of don't see what one has to do with the other. Um, I mean, my, my experience has been that, working with interesting new technologies is a, is an effective recruiting tool in the short term. Um, you know, you definitely get some like 
sort of motivated candidates in the pipeline. Uh, when we started working with Scala at Twitter, it it moved Twitter from being yet another Rails social startup to, you know, oh, maybe this is a company that actually is interested in computer science and interested in functional programming and is going to have some of these like deeper infrastructural challenges, more like a, a Google or, or a Yahoo. Uh, and that definitely helped bring interesting people in the door. But the, you know, kind of long tail of hiring at Twitter, I think, has had very little to do with Scala and a lot more just to do with um, the the reach of the business and the product. You know, they, they, they're going to get talented people one way or another if they run a good business. And, that, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. One of the things that has, has always impressed me about conversations I've had with, with Twitter engineers is... Um, they talk a lot about the business when you talk to them. Um, and, you know, that's not always, <clears throat> that's definitely not always the case. I'm always pleasantly surprised when I talk to an engineer and when I ask them a, a ostensibly technical related question, they'll lead with, well, the business requirements, you know, didn't justify us doing some crazy ass infrastructure or something, right? Um, how has your opinion, you know, changed uh, how has your opinion of business stakeholders changed over time? Um, I think I used to sort of view them as a threat. And I, 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 anecdotally, I think a lot of other engineers sort of start their careers that way, that you know, the, the business guys are the people that get in the way of you doing fun work, and they get in the way of uh, you know, designers and uh, they get in the way of the customer um, by putting business goals in front of everything else. Um, and I think that that sometimes can be true. I, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes business folks end up in organizations for uh, reasons other than their competency, right? You know, they worked with the right person at a previous business or they went to the right school or, you know, whatever other factor that, that gets them in the door. And if they don't actually really care about the product and care about the team, they can do a lot of damage. Um, but that's that's true about a lot of different roles in a company. I was going to uh, say that I've seen developers <laughs> take that same track. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The wrong developer, the wrong customer support person. Um, you know, it really, any anyone, especially if they're in a position of authority, can be really poisonous to an organization. But when business guys uh, and, and gals really get it, um, it, it really just makes such a huge positive impact on a company because people understand what they're working towards. Um, you know, they and engineers at the end of a development cycle are like, well, we ship this thing and here's what it did to revenue. Here's what it did to user retention. And that's why it was worth it. Um, and, and hopefully then you also have a better understanding of what you need to build next. Um, so yeah, I, I think over time I've set aside, uh, some of my innate mistrust of people who don't want to spend eight hours a day coding. Um, yes, it turns, it turns out they're not all evil. <laughs> it does. I, you know, I, I think I fell followed a very similar course in my career where early on I was, I was, I'll say it. I was a pretty terrible engineer to work with for, for business people. Um, and that was kind of funny because I have a business degree, but, um, the, 
the one thing that that I did struggle with when when we when I moved into uh, um, my first co-founded startup as you know as a technical founder of Simple Geo, and I realized that we needed you know at that by that point I had adjusted myself and I was like okay well we need to hire some good business people, and then it was then I had, it dawned on me that it was like I've only ever interviewed tech people like usually when I interview business people it's like will this person drive the engineers nuts and I can do a thumb up, thumb down, you know? Um, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a guess that, that you've probably struggled similarly of kind of like, well, what the hell do we even ask these people? But what are some of the qualities that you, that you look for and that have resonated and that you've seen over and over again in then stakeholders um, that work well with engineering? That's uh, something I'm guessing a lot of other engineers are listening are are struggling with as well. Is like, how do I even know what a good business person looks like? Sure, I I mean, for me, um, almost any hire comes down to, um, you know, do they care about the particular mission of the company? And and mission is is a word that's used so often that it that it's become kind of empty. You know, everyone runs a mission-driven organization, and and in, in its loosest term, that just sort of means like you you have a goal that you agreed to at some point in the past, and you you periodically restate that goal so everyone knows why they're doing what they're doing. Um, but you know, I think it's it's a little bit deeper than that. Like at at Simple, um, we had you know very much a sense of of mission, right? You know, for for me, I, I was working on that business because. Every morning for a few years during the financial crisis, I picked up the paper and the headlines were all about failing banks and people losing their homes and um, people's financial lives being ruined because they didn't have institutions they could trust. They didn't have institutions who were giving them uh, accurate information about their finances and who weren't going after them with predatory fees and so forth. So, you know, for, for me, it was this kind of crusade. You know, I'm like, there, there's, a, there's a moral imperative, there's an economic imperative, there's a political imperative here. And when we were interviewing people from engineers to business folks, I, I guess I wanted to see that they shared some aspect of, of that same sense of purpose, right? They didn't necessarily need to be as politicized about it as I was. They didn't necessarily need to uh, be the sort of people who, you know, immediately like get up and read the, the you know, business section or, or go read the Financial Times every morning. But if they didn't really deeply care about the cause of the business, then they're the wrong people to represent it. Um, I, I think focusing on on business folks more specifically, I looked for people who could build bridges around the organization. Um, you know, someone who, uh, even if they're looking at the books most of the time, they can talk to the customer service folks. Uh, they can talk to engineers. They can talk to designers. M- most likely, they won't have to during uh, during their average week, but it's so important to have those open lines of communication and that mutual respect. Uh, if you don't want the different parts of your company to end up siloed from one another. Yeah, I, I recently tweeted out that one of my my new, it's a, this is my newest uh, uh, interview question that I really like asking developers is, um, and I and it gets to this what I what I would call kind of institutional empathy that you're kind of referring to, where you know you need to have 
empathy for the other people that you're working with. Like the number of meetings I've been into where it's like, I'm like, guys, stop. We're all on the same team here, <laughs> you know, which is, which can be frustrating. Um, is I asked, I asked uh, the developers, if you, if you woke up tomorrow and you had like, you had entered a, a fugue state and you had lost all knowledge of programming, what is the other, like, what is the other business group that you would work in within your company and why? And it's a, it's a fascinating question to ask developers because a full third of them, their brains explode at the thought of not being a geek, um, which is funny. <laughs> um, do, you, do you prescribe to the notion, you know, since we're kind of on this, do you prescribe to the notion that everybody in the business should know how to code? No. No, I don't. Um, I'm, I'm not a programming education universalist. Uh, <laughs> universalist. <laughs> that, that, that's some... Um, that some of my uh, industry colleagues are. I, I understand why people hold that opinion. And, and honestly, you know, not everyone on the planet is ever going to know how to, how to code. But if there are people out there who are making it their life's mission to teach more people how to code, uh, I, I, I don't think that's harmful, right? I'm, I'm not saying that we should actively discourage people from learning how to code. But no, I, I, I think that people have different skill sets. Um, I, I think that Everyone is capable of programming for some definition of programming, but um, I, I think that some folks are, uh, they seem to be predisposed to be systems thinkers, and programming is a very expressive uh, medium for systems thinking. Um, but uh, there are other people who are systems thinkers, and their system is the law or their system is finance. And, you know, systems thinking is, you know, I think sort of the, um, the where, where a lot of the value comes from in an information economy. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't discount systems thinkers who are not fluent in programming. Um, all that said, you know, at, at Simple, we had all kinds of intra-company training for people who wanted to learn more about programming. We had a bunch of our customer service folks learning how to code. Um, you know, we tried to get uh, some of our finance folks fluent in R so that they, they were able to do some statistical stuff beyond what was available in Excel. Um, so, you know, there's, there's value there, um, but I, I don't think that being dogmatic about it is um, is realistic. I, I totally agree with you. I you know I had a I had a call with um, uh, I, I won't get into the specifics, but there were uh, two or three CPAs. No, there were two CPAs and three lawyers on the phone call, and uh, they were explaining um, a rather complicated kind of financial tool. And I got off the phone and I was like, "Holy crap!" if you don't think that accountants and lawyers are hackers too, like you're working with poor accountants and poor lawyers, totally. uh, it's kind of mind blowing what, what they can do. Um, and we are, our CEO actually got his, his MBA in finance and you know, he does things in Excel that absolutely qualify as coding. <laughs> and I, I think some people, I think some programmers discount like what you said, the systems thinking that really resonates with me. 
Yeah, I, I think I think there's a sort of arrogance about the supremacy of programming that comes from so much of, of our culture at large being focused on the wealth that's generated by the technology industry. And that's trickled down to even kind of media and cultural analysts like Douglas Rushkoff, who recently published this book on, you know, like program or be programmed. And I, I think that that's just sort of like blindingly naive. Um, you know, the, the people at the top of the pyramid are not programmers. Maybe they're folks like, you know, Sergey Brin or whatever, who at one point was a programmer. But, the, you know, the, the people that, that you are working for directly or indirectly are not programmers and they don't need to be programmers because they can hire you, right? Like, they are systems thinkers who are looking at the economy as a whole, their their chessboard is not code. It's you know business units, mergers and acquisitions, all the rest of it. You know th- those are uh, those are the you know uh, ah, you'll have to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. We can we can edit that down. Whatever. Um, whatever. We'll figure it out. Uh, do you want to just start over from a certain point in the answer, or do you want us just to uh, go? What's that? Let's just move on. All right, we'll just move on. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> um, one of the things that, that I wanted to I wanted to poke your brain about a little bit is you know we're we both have founded a, a company or two and we've both invested in a few companies. Um, one of the things that uh, Manu Kumar from he's a proprietor of Canine Ventures, a, a boutique venture fund in in uh, the Bay Area. I've always appreciated Manu because he has this set of, he's also, by the way, a former engineer, which won't come as a shock when I tell you this. Uh, he has a set of six or seven objective filters where he just basically says, you know, look, this is how I invest. If you don't, if you're not a yes or a correct answer on all seven of these, no harm, no foul. I love you. I hope you do well. I just won't invest. Do you have, do you have similar kind of red flags? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've tried to to keep the few angel investments that I've made pretty kind of close to what I know. Um, and yeah, I feel like what I know best at this point is tools for other developers. Um, so if, if you look at the companies that I've invested in, they're, they're almost all of that in one shape or another from, you know, your, your thing, Sprintly, which definitely makes the lives of developers and uh, anyone else building a product a little bit easier. Um, to my most recent investment in human API who are building a, a really nice set of APIs and, and a, a sort of broader platform around a lot of health data. Um, so, you know, while I'm not by any means uh, an, an expert in the healthcare industry, I, I do feel like I was able to evaluate that business on the criteria of do they know how to build an API that people are excited about using? And when they were you know, telling me that they had a uh, potential customer who had already completed an integration with their API before they even got on their first sales call. You know, that's that's really part of what hooked me about that company. Um, you know, I, I know from experience that if uh, a developer platform is that self-serve and, and easy to use, that's usually a, a mark of, of future success. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> the... When when technical founders come to you with with their uh, their fancy shiny new idea, what what are the things that you're like? You know, there have been a lot of times in my career, particularly as after I broke the the three O barrier, 
um, where younger kind of engineers and entrepreneurs come to me and you're just like, oh, Padawan, what are you doing? <laughs> what are, I would love to hear a few stories. I, I have, I have a couple, but uh, I'd love to hear a few of yours. Uh, you know, I, I tend to sort of head a lot of that stuff off at the pass. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested in, in making more than two, maybe three investments a year. So, um, you know, it's, it's not like I'm being, being hit up constantly, but, uh, you know, thanks to angel list and that sort of thing, it's, it's definitely easier for companies to get in touch with investors than it ever has been before, which I think is, is a good thing. Um, you know, I, I get, I get hit up with a lot of social stuff. Um, and I say no to that, not necessarily because I think that those are bad businesses, but just cause I'm sort of personally burned out on it. And I don't think anyone needs a burned out investor on their team. I don't think that's going to help. Um, I, I don't know, I guess, you know, I, I've seen, uh, I've seen people, uh, bring up all kinds of different ways of like appealing to developers, building developer communities, uh, hiring developers, training developers in all these kind of like quick fix superficial ways. Um, and I, I think, you know, there, there's, there's no one way of, of learning how to be a developer. There's, there's no particular set of tools like we were talking about earlier when it comes to uh, sort of language biases um, that, you know, there, there's no, there's no magic solution for uh, solving the problem of building uh, products and, and businesses that require a lot of coding. It's just, it's hard work. Uh, it, it takes a number of years to become even sort of facile at it and, and even, even longer to actually become really good at it. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, because I've broadcast an interest in developer-facing technologies, um, you know that's that's the thing that I that I see a lot and kind of roll my eyes over are these kind of like you know oh well we've invented this framework that'll make people twenty times more productive or we think that if everyone joins this particular developer community that you know will be the next GitHub and this is where all the interesting ideas and programming are going to come from or that sort of thing and and I just don't buy it. Yeah, I um, the one that always that always causes me to slap my forehead is I'll have people come to me and they'll be like, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna raise 1.5 million dollars in my seed round, and you're like, okay, why? And <laughs> seems like a reasonable question, and the the most common answer is, you know, well, that's what so and so raised, and. And I think that there's like we've this is ter- this is the worst worst thing that has come out of the last five to six years in Silicon Valley is in the in the in the olden in my day in the olden days uh, you would create this thing called a financial model <laughs> and it would have be forecasted based hopefully partly on actual business data and partly on some assumptions based on you know team input. Uh, and then, you know, you would say, well, I, you know, at some point the revenue growth and the cost lines crisscross. And what you raised was like supposed to get you to that crisscross point. <laughs> yep. And they're like, 
And you're like, hold on a sec. So you are going to go and ask a, a, a person who probably has an MBA from a top five finance school in the world, never mind the country, uh, for one and a half million dollars, and you don't have a financial like model. And what's what's worse is they're getting it. That's what that's what annoys me at this point. Well, you know, I, I think the market for uh, the market for acquihires, you know, these early stage acquisitions of teams by larger companies for their talent, has justified that type of like voodoo startup financial modeling. You know, you, you kind of don't need to get to the crisscross point anymore. You just sort of need to like stay visible and manipulate the press cycle and long enough uh, so that someone is worried about you as a potential threat and uh, like, you know, ostensibly sort of buys you for the talent or buys you for the technology that you've built. Although I'm even more skeptical of that because I, I don't see how most teams can produce technology of significant value inside of 18 to 24 months or whatever the usual life cycle is for those aqua hires. Um, so I, I get why people are doing it, right? Like the market has clearly demonstrated that there are rewards out there uh, if, if you can play that game. Um, but I, I don't know. I, 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 I would be freaked out about trying to plan a business down that road. That, that seems like a huge gamble to me. And uh, I don't know. I, I would just think it would be kind of demoralizing uh, and kind of, kind of like, I, I don't know what sort of people you'd end up working with if your message to potential hires was, you know, like, hey, let's let's build this thing and flip it in in eighteen months. Um, it just seems sort of mercenary to me. Uh, I've been really happy working on teams with people who are really passionate about the thing that they're building and who, you know, sure, like they would like to make some money. They'd like to have more financial independence. Who who wouldn't? Um, but the, the reason they get up and come to work every day is they take some pride in, in what their business is actually doing and the role it plays in their community, not just the, the financial opportunity. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's interesting that you brought up kind of the aqua hire cycle and stuff. I, I honestly look at the aqua hire stuff as a pump and dump scheme. <laughs> it, that's really what it kind of feels like. But the, the one thing that I've found with the raising money and, how it relates to how much people care about the product because there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are out there and i feel like the more i talk to people and you know particularly my younger friends that are starting to think about starting their own companies in san francisco is they're not really looking they're looking for a problem to work on but they're generally not working on a problem that's very that they're very they're very intimately attached to um and one of the things that you know i think this is kind of um, I forgot where I was going to go with that. Let's scratch that. <laughs> we'll edit that one out. Okay. Two brain farts make a, make a right, I think. Sure. Um, all right. We've got five minutes left. What is there anything that uh, we've talked about that you'd like to revisit or do another question on or chat about? What are some things that should we give people a really big warning? Oh, I remember where I was going with that, which is basically that as soon as you raise money, you basically have destroyed your product because there's really only a few options. One is that it gets acquired and shut down. One, it gets acquired and then shut down at some point afterwards by the company in question that has bought it or it gets shut down just outright. Sure. <laughs> All right. Yeah. 
Let me, I'm going to ask that in a former question and then maybe we can edit over my, my fumbling one. Go for it. Um, so Alex, you know, you bring up a, a good point around kind of raising funds. And one of the things that um, I, I tell entrepreneurs, I think about raising funds is I, I always, I always ask them the question, like, how much do you care about this thing? You know, whatever, whatever the heck they're building. And, you know, you get varying degrees of answers on that, which I find interesting in its own right. But I have a thesis that basically, as soon as you've raised money, you've signed up, you've signed the death warrant for that product. And what I mean by that is, is if you look at the, even the positive outcomes, but if you look at the total distribution of outcomes, the outcomes are one, you know, 95% of the time or more, the company folds entirely. And that usually results in the product being shut down or destroyed. Two is there's an aqua hire implied in that is that the product is shut down. Three is that you do actually get acquired. Um, but at that point, you know, the internal, the, the company either, um, you know, put somebody else in charge of the business unit or the founders cash out and they leave. And therefore, you know, you know, you don't have this like institutional leader. And then eventually the product gets shut down. Do, do you agree with that? Like, if, or do you, do, do you think that there should be, that there is like a careness factor that if you care above X level, you probably shouldn't even consider venture financing? <laughs> um, yeah, potentially. I, I think there are certain things there are certain types of business problems that are going to be very, very hard to go after without a, a, a big war chest. And, and for almost all entrepreneurs, that means having to look at venture funding. So, um, you know, there, there's just some cases where you can't avoid it. But, yeah, I think that the more you love your, your product and value your autonomy, your ability to make decisions about the future of that product, then having fewer cooks in the kitchen uh, is probably a good idea. And uh, in, in my experience, VCs can be uh, some pretty bossy cooks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's, it's a trade-off of how we view the startup market, right? Like one view is that startups are this sort of, um, you know, lab or this, this big like evolutionary uh, battlefield uh, where we're, we're trying to see what ideas sink or swim, um, and that that means that you know, you know products are going to to die, and they're usually going to die relatively young. Um, and you know, some people would argue that there's like broader economic value uh, in in that evolutionary process. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. I'm a little skeptical of where a lot of the value is actually going. I think a lot of it is being captured by the investor class and really uh, doesn't make it to the public in the form of either better technologies or investment opportunities that are open to the public. Um, so I, I think that, that that is a little bit insidious. Um, we also hear a lot about how you know cheap and easy it is to start companies these days. Well, the flip side of that is that a lot of those companies are trivial. Um, <laughs> so you know, it, it, there there was just an article in the New York Times about how much money is being dumped into um, pre-profit startups that do seem like they they have a real future. Companies like Airbnb. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how you square those two statements up. You know, it's, it's really cheap and easy to start companies, but the ones that are going to stick around require $150, $200 million in private equity financing to, you know, make it. Well, you know, may, maybe 
that's the tail end of that evolutionary process. You know, the, the, the big dinosaurs that live end up hoovering up all this private equity money so that they can grow. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the, um, the, the, the startup market is a, is a very complicated place right now. And uh, the best way to simplify it for an individual entrepreneur is to, you know, just kind of keep your cards close to your chest and as much as possible um, try to rely on direct revenue um, rather than, than financing. Yeah, I uh, there's a there's a couple of things that you said in there that that I, I totally agree with. One, I've had a pet theory for a while that basically since Web 2.0, once we hit the rise of the aqua hire, and and I think this all started back at the first dot com bust. But my opinion is is that Fortune 500 has effectively outsourced R and D to the venture community. Absolutely. And and you know there's a whole bunch of problems that could arise or be problematic. And I think if you just manage your expectations at a time, like I'm starting a mini R and D lab, we're going to tackle this specific problem. And if my research nuts out, uh, I will get paid rather than getting a government grant. Um, the other thing that you said was that, you know, not getting access to investment opportunities. One of the things that has been totally mind blowing to me and you, this has probably been a double whammy for you, given that you worked at Simple and have done uh, investment and, and raise funding. But once I became a founder, you start hanging out with people that have a lot of money. It's just by nature. All, almost all of these investors that you work with are are going, are you know, partners are multimillionaires, if not the occasional billionaire. Um, you know, and most of the people that that work there have, at a bare minimum, are making very, 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 very high salaries. And what came as a sh- total system shock to me was the realization that the financial tools available to that class of citizens, like they're not even playing on the same ball field. It's like, it's not even the same game. No, no, it's, it's not. And, you know, inside of simple, you know, our, our, um, you know, founders and, and folks were going to bank industry conferences and, uh, in those, sort of semi-private forums, you would hear the executives of, of huge global banks basically say, we don't want to be in the business of having um, regular consumer customers anymore. It's just not worth it, right? The, the profit margins just aren't there. It's the, you know, the, the, um, you know, the biggest banks in the world, they, they just want HNIs. They want those high net worth individuals um, because that's where, that's where the money is, um, so it's scary, right? You know, I, I, there's there's a, a kind of economic disenfranchisement that takes place when so much wealth is in the hands of so few people. Uh, and even though in the tech industry we see ourselves as sort of immune from larger economic downturns, and you know, we're the people who make hundred grand salaries right out of school and, and all that kind of stuff. When you think about the people who are really making the decisions about um, where you can work and which companies get financed and what technologies are on the horizon. Um, they're people who lead lives uh, and certainly financial lives that are very, very disconnected from normal people. Um, and, you know, maybe they are exceptional human beings whose uh, near godlike intelligence will guide us all to a better future. Uh, <laughs> but I think I'm a little bit too much of a populist to uh, to believe that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the one... Um... <coughs> Excuse me. The one uh, example that I think really 
there's two examples, by the way, of what I mean by they're not even playing the same financial like game. Like the tools that are available to them are much, much more advanced. One of them is uh, Mitt Romney in the last campaign. Like a whole bunch of people on the left got really up, upset about the fact that he had like $2 million sitting in an IRA. And I knew immediately. I knew immediately how they how that had happened, and and it's totally legal. And of course, a VC, you know, Mitt's a former VC. Uh, a, the, a VC taught me this hack, which is that your IRAs can own personal or can own private assets. So you can actually take IRA money and invest it into a real estate property if you wanted to. You could invest. Sure. You could buy stock in Sprintly if you wanted to, but. The caveat here, and this is where the unplaying field comes from, is most companies, for instance, I asked E-Trade, I was like, this sounds awesome. I want to buy a rental property with my IRA uh, because cash flow and returns, so rent on an, IRA, on, an, on an IRA owned rental property comes in as return on investment. So it doesn't count towards your, your 17 or whatever limit a year. Um, and they were like, sorry, you have to have $250,000 or more uh, in total assets with us. <laughs> so a lot of the like you can't even unlock those things so even the funny thing is is the those engineers that are making 100k a year it would probably be a decade or more saving at the top tilt working at google before they could even unlock that tool yeah yeah i mean yeah tech 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 workers are certainly a very advantaged and privileged group of workers but they're still workers they're still labor and right now uh, you know our, our economy and our political system is not about reflecting the the interests of labor it's about reflecting the interest of the owners of capital yeah. uh, and you know if if you if you as a participant in that system want to change it it's partly political action but i think it's it's also um, you know thinking about where you work and what the value of that organization is um, and how you can work with like-minded people to, um, you know, make some positive changes there. Well, on that note, uh, we were, we're a few minutes over, over our time with, with Alex, Alex, I, I really want to say thanks for, for joining us. Um, and, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. Are you a senior software engineer looking for a lifestyle upgrade? Help us craft outstanding web and mobile applications. Quick Left, an award-winning consultancy, is hiring skilled software engineers in beautiful Boulder, Denver, Portland, and San Francisco. Apply today and craft impactful software products with us. Visit quickleft.com careers to start your next journey.